Hello, and welcome back to the Perth U.S. Asia Center's Perspectives podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Springer. We have a very special guest today. He's just moved to Perth from Mexico City. Chris Rodwell is the new CEO of the West Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. In his previous role in Mexico City, he represented Australia and his commercial interests as trade commissioner. He has worked extensively in South and Central America as an economic diplomat. Now, as CEO of Western Australia's peak advocacy organization for businesses, his efforts will focus more and more on Asia. I've got a lot of questions for him, including questions about Australia's competitiveness in areas like foreign language skills. And I also talked to him about opportunities in Latin America, a region we don't often discuss on this podcast. But I think you'll find a lot of the same lessons apply to our region as well. Chris starts out our interview by telling me about how his life took him in several different directions. I mainly grew up on the northern beaches of Sydney. But my life has kind of taken me in a whole lot of directions. And so I spent most of my childhood there, some in Canberra, some in New Zealand. And then after that, I flew the coop. And you've moved to Perth how long ago now? So a few months. A few only. months. Yeah, yeah. mid-January I, I came into Perth. Yeah, it was a long, long trek here. From, uh, from Mexico City. That's right, Mexico City. And before that, I was in Santiago in Chile. And before that, Los Angeles, Brisbane, Sydney, London, Canberra. So a few destinations upon the way. And how are you finding Perth so far? Ah, oh, amazing. I mean, there was good reason for coming here. It's got an incredible lifestyle, but I think it's got a really inspired or inspiring future ahead of it as it builds out of its resources sector and takes advantage of its position in the globe. I think that's really exciting. And so those two things combined make it an extraordinary place to live. And congratulations on your new role at the Chamber of Commerce and Industry of Western Australia. Tell us a little bit about the Chamber and what it does. The Chamber's been around since 1890, and it really was structured around a couple of really critical issues, which remain critical today, and that's really around the environment that businesses have to operate in and particularly around workplace relations and that relationship with the community and with the union movement. And the other piece, of course, was around trade. And in those days, in particular, protectionist versus free trade policies. And, and so in many ways, that hasn't changed. But of course, the economy has changed fundamentally over that time. And I think more or less we've won the free trade debate, but you might think maybe not, <laughs> given what's happening in the US and other parts of the world right now. And we've certainly moved a long way in terms of establishing the human rights and the expectations of workers, as, as well as being able to create businesses that really are forward thinking in, in the way in which they relate to their teams, to their employees, but the way in which they think about the way in which society can develop. You studied at Charles Sturt University, where you studied a range of subjects, including journalism, political science, industrial relations, and theater. Very uh, broad choice of, of areas of study, all very interesting. Tell me a little bit about how you think your experience at university helped launch your career. I chose Charles Sturt University for a few reasons. I originally went there to, to study theater, but I, I chose the place because I chose independence. 
I didn't want to be living at home. I really wanted a, a unique experience at a university and I wanted to be able to see the world for myself and, and my pursuits academically probably reflect the fact that maybe I couldn't quite make up my mind, but I just followed my curiosity. And, and I, I think that's what my experience at university was all about, was following my curiosity and being able to develop a whole set of relationship and some knowledge along the way that one way or another would allow me to build a set of skills that could be applied anyway, a- anywhere, whether that was critical thinking or abstract reasoning. And, and that's really what I got from university. We make a lot of fuss about the STEM subjects, you know, science, technology, engineering, so on. But what do you think about the arts disciplines like writing and theater? Yeah, you could probably get an insight, I suppose, in terms of what my tertiary studies were. I I really find creative pursuits absolutely fundamental to exploring our humanity. And and so that's why I pursued those and those particular pursuits. And and it was really such an enthralling time in in my life and I think is responsible for me developing in the the way that I have. Um, I didn't actually come to university necessarily with that background. All my school subjects were physics, mathematics, economics, so I also have huge respect for the sciences and, and am really engaged around STEM projects because they are fundamental to our future and especially in WA, look at the opportunity in space and in engineering and potentially in battery materials. So so much of what we will do in the future relies on a, a knowledge base around uh, that that core of STEM. I prefer STEAM as an yeah. acronym, but yeah, I've heard that one. Yeah, <laughs> but it's good. Yeah, but you know, I, I think it's really important. And even if you reflect in history, particularly British history, they, they were one and the same. And, and, and still you have societies in Britain that actually reflect on these pursuits as, as one and the same thing. It's all about lateral thinking, expression and, and creativity and invention. And, and that's what's really fundamental to the development of our society. And now let's talk about language. I understand before you made the move to Mexico, you took some time to study the Spanish language. How important is it to have language skills today? So my children would laugh at this question uh-huh. because <laughs> their rating of my Spanish is is perhaps a little harsh, but but sometimes true in that I've obviously come to the language late. I studied a bit of German and a tiny bit of French when I was at school, but I'm certainly one of those people who, who lacks a natural flair in, in languages. In saying that, you know, I, I think languages are absolutely fundamental to our future and, and I I did try and pursue them as, as best I could, but I would, I've met people with natural flair and I don't have it. But I think they're really critical, particularly in international business. But also, if you're talking about expanding you, you, your brain, I mean, language skills are absolutely critical to connecting the, the different hemispheres of, of your brain and they, and they create brighter people who, who can create a better society. And, and, so, and, I, and I think in particular, Spanish in Australia is perhaps the most undervalued language, given how widely it is spoken around the world. There aren't too many languages that come higher up the, up the ladder than Spanish, and, and we tend to be preferring other languages which I don't think are so essential, certainly in business. But I always think any language is better than, better than none at all. 
So, in your opinion, how does Australia stack up in language skills? Oh, I, I think you've got to be blunt here and say yeah. poorly, really poorly. And I think it's not embedded in our school system. It needs to be. While there's a commitment to it, I think there's not a real commitment to it in sense that it's every day. And if we go and look over in Europe and and you go to the, the Netherlands, for instance, I've met many Dutch people in my life. I stop mainly at four or five languages because it just gets embarrassing <laughs> to ask them how many more they know. And what I see with that is they are able to transport themselves to, a, to any culture and any society and be able to relate in a in a way that perhaps Australians find a bit more difficult. It's not to say that we don't have language capability here, but it still seems to sit within those particular cohorts who perhaps have parents or were first born in, in another nation, whether it be China, Vietnam, wherever we're talking about. Would you say the Australian government and Aussie companies value in-country experience? Increasingly, I think it's a work in progress. And some Australian companies just are quite amazing in terms of the way in which they engage in other places in the world, other markets in the world. And, and I've been really privileged to see some of those companies and, and the people they've put into those markets are, are now some of my best friends. But I would say it's a fairly shallow pool. There's a lot of work for Australian Australia and Australian companies to do in terms of building that knowledge. And where they will make serious investments domestically in developing a market, they seem to be at a loss to sometimes understand why they're not making inroads in new markets and yet not putting the appropriate resource and people behind it in the market to develop those relationships. And there's probably sometimes, at least, a lack of appreciation of how important building those relationships is. We say we're a relationship culture, and we are, but we are more direct and transactional than a lot of the cultures in which we need to work and operate if we want to build business. And and sometimes we don't perhaps pay it as much respect as, as we should. But as I say, I see both sides. I, I certainly see Australian companies who have incredible insight and make extraordinary effort in, in this regard, but, but others overlook it. Now, we usually talk about Asia at Perth US Asia Center. <laughs> But this in this podcast is going to be unique because we're going to talk a lot about Latin America, Mexico, Central America, where you've spent a lot of time. And as trade commissioner to Mexico, you oversaw a transformation in Australia's commercial relations with that country across a variety of sectors, resources, advanced manufacturing, food, agribusiness, and so on. What do you think were some of the breakthroughs that Austrade achieved there? Yeah, Mexico became a home away from home for me. I mean, I, I just have extraordinary passion for the place. I just think it has such an, an incredible future ahead of it. Is people probably poorly depicted in other parts of the world? I found them to be the warmest, most generous people. And they let you in into their homes in, in a way which is just so fulfilling 
for you when you've come from outside. But more than that, I think their economy has so much potential. They've got a, an emerging middle class in you know in the in the tens of millions. This is a country that has 130 million people, and its GDP per capita in US dollars is around 19,000. So that doesn't make it a poor country. It's a, a very much an emerging market, and it has an extraordinary level of trade. It has 13 different trade agreements. I think we can now count 14 because of the TPP 11. Mm-hmm. 14 different trade agreements covering I don't know how many that added, but you know, it was when I was there, 46 countries. It's probably up near 50 countries that are now signed to an agreement. And then it's obviously attached to the, to the US. And, and for Australia, that represents such an opportunity. And it did so before the TPP-11 was even ag- agreed. And the opportunity was a really interesting one. And, and that was principally for Australian companies to invest into Mexico to get hold of the global and regional value chains that were there and remain there. And if you looked at the investment that was occurring, you know, Macquarie Group are running a couple of portfolios around 3.5 billion. IFM Investors has made a significant play. I, I think they've completed a transaction which gives them over uh, around four and a half billion US in the in the market. Seek is the biggest online employment player, and, and then you've got BHP making the single largest deal with the national-owned uh, petroleum company Pemex in Mexico's history. And so uh, should that project go ahead, that's estimated to be about 11 billion. And that's notwithstanding the potential for Australia in food and agribusiness to start bringing in particularly premium and ultra premium products. And we're already seeing that because they have temporarily removed the tariff on on beef such that we're paying zero in getting our beef into the the market. And we've seen organisations like Meat and Livestock Australia work really closely with Austrade in developing that market. So so for me to be there at such a pivotal time when locally in the Mexican economy, the government was so committed to economic reform, where it reduced telco costs by 75% during its term. They added 50 million smartphone users in that time. And, and then to see the energy reform, the financial services reform, you know, th- this is a country that's right at the, in the top grouping in, when it comes to fintech, for instance. And some of the incubators and accelerators that they have in this country are, are extraordinary. And so when you put that together, what you end up with is forecasts such as o- Oxford Economics and others saying, this will be the sixth largest trading nation in the world by 2050. And I would say, you know, if you're Australian and you were to learn of this country and its name wasn't Mexico and it wasn't based in the Americas, but you transposed it and and it was in Asia, you'd be saying, what am I missing out on here? I've got to get part of this. This is going to be fantastic. And and I think there's still a way to go in that. But the top boardrooms, I've mentioned the names of a few, they know about this place and they're committed to it. So I think, yeah, good days ahead for Mexico and Australia and and some wonderful people because I mentioned Austrade, but their whole Australian embassy has just been doing some outstanding work in terms of building those relationships. Well, that's fascinating. Australia, Mexico embarking on a new wide economic partnership. That's That's very, very interesting. Now, another interesting accomplishment during your time in Latin America was leading the first ever trade delegation to Cuba. What was that like? Uh, 
it was complex. <laughs> so, <laughs> I bet. <laughs> so we were leading this out of Mexico City. So organising anything remotely can be difficult. And and I should say the minister at the time was Andrew Robb, and it was just as he was. In, in fact, he wasn't minister anymore. He, he had just changed into becoming the special envoy. And so we were working with him to try and develop really some niche opportunities. And sometimes they can be quite significant. But you know, Cuba is what it is. It's a centrally planned economy. And so you are at the the behest of, of the Cuban government in terms of setting up a trade mission. So you can ask for certain things. And I have to say they were wonderful to work with in terms of getting the right meetings for for our companies, whether it be in food and agribusiness or whether it be in, in energy or, or, or the like. So, so they were fantastic to work with. And then, of course, there's Havana, right? Uh, and what a place. What what a place. You do take a trip back in, in history because clearly it's a, a different place that reflects the fact that it is a centrally planned economy, but it has great joy in, in the city. And of course, you get to see some of those old old cars as, as well. And yeah, it, it's an incredible place to visit. So what were your impressions of Australia's potential to work with Cuba in, in business and economics? Yeah, I would say... It'll never become a really strategic market for us. Yeah. It's just a bit difficult to access. Mm-hmm. And and it, it, that comes to its geography. We can't ever see getting a direct flight there as we could, for instance, into Mexico City. That's a real possibility. And, and then access via boat. You know, you're still coming through the Panama Canal. So it's, so it's still a long old journey. But I think at the premium food end, certainly, there's a big, big tourism sector in, in Cuba and one that's growing and there's been lots of funding come in, particularly Spanish firms. Canadians love visiting Cuba. So over a million Canadians visit Cuba every every year. And so they have a certain expectation around food and wine and other things. And so there's potential for Australia to service that. And then it's a big nickel miner, one of the biggest in the world. And we've had Australian companies like Orica, for instance, involved in the development of that mining for a long time. And in fact, it's the government along with a Canadian company that uh, develops most of the the nickel assets. We also have another Australian company, Malbana Energy, as listed on the ASX, that is one of the first, if not the first, I think, to look at some onshore fields, which I think it's still investigating at, at the current time. So so there's some opportunities there, and the government itself might be taking things slowly, but very strategically in building, for instance, the port facility there, and, and you're seeing investments from companies such as Siemens. Of course, this is all a bit... For Cuba, there's still the relationship with the US that needs to be managed, and through the Obama administration, that was probably on the up, but clearly with the Trump administration, it's, it's a more tenuous relationship. And that does impact uh, Australia. Now, WA businesses, what opportunities do you see for them in places like Mexico, other parts of Central America and the Caribbean in the coming years? Yeah, my focus was principally on Mexico. And I, I, I would say you've got to pick a market and really try and grow it. And, and I think it's appropriate that 90% of Australia's attention go to Mexico because really not just in the context of the region you've mentioned, but in more broadly across Latin America, if you're looking for a very significant open market 
with huge potential of growth that's going to go inside the top 10 economies in you know 10 years and then and then as a trading nation grow at a similar similar rate as well then i think mexico has to be really central to your focus even in respect of you know chile and peru and argentina and colombia and and brazil although i would say all of them don't don't overlook them the whole region don't overlook it but mexico is clearly a huge huge market so where are the opportunities certainly in energy and mining really key opportunities there latin america overall is really blessed with those resources and obviously australia has extraordinary experience and technology and technical skill to bring to bear whether it's right at the top in terms of our mining and and our big operators or whether it's the services and equipment and technology but there's more than that there's definitely huge opportunity in international education and i think brazil for australia is now third or fourth largest market anywhere in the world so that's extraordinary and particularly given they have to take multiple planes mostly you've got you know at least two stops if not three to get to australia and colombia is a really big market as well for australia so and you would like to see those research ties also build and the potential for opportunities for our vet sector and our universities in terms of the borderless education opportunities. And we shouldn't overlook consumer goods. You've got 600 million people across Latin America and they're mostly, with exception to a few economies, moving in the right direction. And their tastes are improving, their ability and their discretionary spending in order to, to move up the value chain in their foods and their drinks is absolutely there. And, you know, if you go to Mexico, Walmart's all over it. They've got $30 billion US in revenues coming out of Mexico. Wow. This is serious play. And the same goes for Costco. So you've got Walmart and Costco, the two biggest operators in the world, operating in Mexico. So you'd hope that we can get some premium beef and some wine, which was really what we concentrated on in my time there. So so yeah, really, really big opportunities there. Advanced manufacturing, we're certainly seeing that. And I think a, a heap of niche opportunities, because with 130 million, with $1 trillion economies comes, comes opportunity. And same goes for Brazil. If you're looking into Central America, I think you're probably again going to build off food and agribusiness and, and mining. And that would be typical as well in, in a place like Cuba. But also don't overlook Trinidad and Tobago because you've got some great opportunity there. BHP is certainly looking at some energy assets there and it's been shooting some seismic and and wherever BHP goes you've got to argue Australian companies should look to follow. Now we're in Perth, very very close to Asia and we've got a similar growth story in some of the countries in Asia. What are your thoughts on opportunities there? Don't miss out on them. Just because I'm a, I've got this great passion for Mexico doesn't mean that I'm one-eyed about it. I think we need to accept that globalization is what it is, and it says there's going to be opportunities globally. So it's then where you want to focus your energies and, and try to tap into those markets and look at the long-term as well as short-term opportunities, but, but certainly look at the prospects for long-term, long-term growth. I mean, China, we can see it's just extraordinary opportunity and, and we really need to drive the e-commerce angle in there. But it's not just that. It's Vietnam, the Philippines, India for sure. I think India and Indonesia are, are both big opportunities, although I would say, you know, there are also some significant risks attached 
attached to that. And you've got to be certainly a little circumspect sometimes when you're making significant investments. But clearly you can't overlook to very, very large markets to find where those opportunities might exist. And, and you don't want to leave your run too late. So over your career, you've worked at many different industry groups, government organizations, companies, among them including the Australia Industry Group, the Queensland Government, Skills Tech Australia, and several others. How do you approach taking a new role like you're you're doing here in Perth now? You've got to be really straightforward, you know, in your own mind about what you want your legacy to be. And and if you know that, then you can really start to define what impact you want to have. And particularly for the current organisation that I'm working with, I, I think the key is for the, the business community to build a stronger bridge over to the broader community. We exist because we want WA to be the best place to live and work. And in that sentence, it describes a need to really have more touch points with the community. And not just to tell our story, but to really engage. And so that's that's how I think through our purpose. And I think that's in common with how I've approached every role that I've done is to really be clear around that. And then to ensure that other people inside your organization are, are willing and ready to make that same journey. And, and I think that's a really important point around team. You know, I come to work because, not because my contract says I have to, n- not because I need to feed my family. Those things are there. But I come to work because I've made an ethical decision. And that is, I want to be part of this. I want to have purpose in my life. And the same thing I try to express to my team is to say, if you want to be part of this journey, if you want the business community to really resonate and to be able to transform society, then come to work on that basis. And the rest will happen as a, as a result of it. And, and that's really what drives me in this role as it has done in every role I take. And what's it like at this phase of your career taking a role like this one that you've just stepped into? This one's interesting because obviously I come into a community which, you know, I've been told is quite closed and you have to, you have to work the room and, and work the terrace. But I, I find it that a little bit odd because it's at odds with the fact that more than half of the people in the business community and the broader community actually came from somewhere else. And in fact, one third of the people in the workforce here in Perth actually came from somewhere altogether different in that they came from another country. They were born in another country. And so, you know, I've certainly got to get to grips with making relationships and and there are very established relationships in, in WA. But at the same time, this is the first market in a while that I've been able to do that in my first language. So, so, so that, that works in favour. Good advantage, yeah. <laughs> and then you've just got to think through when you want to set a course for something, how you're going to do that and how you're not just going to bring your team along, but other stakeholders along on that journey. And really, as long as you're contemplating around that, then, uh, then I think you, you'll, you'll do well. The other thing is to recognise early on that 
there's a lot of hours involved in in making making those changes and and in driving that vision and so thankfully I've got a wonderful family who understands me and uh, and respects the fact that you know I, I'm going to very early on just live and breathe it all and eventually once you set that right you've got the right levers and buttons in front of you such that you can make the make the smaller adjustments to make sure you're on the right path the other thing though is is along that way I also want to express an openness to change and a willingness to accept mistakes, especially from my team. I want them to be able to experiment because you know, part of that ethical conversation is also about empowerment. If we're going to have a vision like that, they've got to feel empowered that they, they can drive towards that and, and they can bring their own opinions and insights and ways of doing work into the mix such that they can achieve what we're setting out to do as a team. At Perth US Asia Centre, we talk about Perth as Australia's gateway to the Indo-Pacific region. What are your impressions of Perth's potential as a business and industry hub in this region? So maybe I step back to my role in Mexico because I actually came to Perth more than to any other capital city in Australia while I was based in Mexico City. Interesting. And that was because that I saw exactly this potential. And I saw that perhaps it hasn't been as engaged as it might be in building its brand and its effort internationally. So it's all upside for this place. And I came here around energy and mining and international education in particular. But when you visit as often as I did, and, and it wasn't easy because it's a long flight, it's about 30 hours from door to, door to door, maybe even a little bit more if things don't go your, go your way. But what you started to see here was, oh, these guys are doing a big space project called SKA. <laughs> it's, it's like extraordinary. And then you're seeing what's happening in defense and you're seeing what could happen in, in battery materials and you're seeing what Perth Airport is doing about transforming that place and getting that infrastructure and more direct flights in and, and looking to connect us to the world. And all of a sudden you start seeing a picture that is extraordinary and, and even your own center is doing some wonderful work around the positioning in the Indo-Pacific. And you have this oversupply of ministers and cabinet ministers coming out of WA and, and some re really enlightened group federally and, and certainly even at a state level, you know, you've got some really good leadership there. And so my impressions, are it's all before it. And we, but we really have to seize the opportunity as well. And that means we have to make some smarter investments about how we push ourselves out to the world, not, not just to the rest of Australia, and, and recognize that we have a really unique position. So I'm going to use an economic term, competitive advantages. What do you think Perth's competitive advantages are? So the place likes to talk, and Western Australia likes to say, you know, we're about the m most remote place in, in the world. It's actually not correct. It's actually incredibly nope. connected to Asia. <laughs> it, it's a lot closer to Asia than, than the eastern seaboard. So I think we need to turn that one on its head. That is clearly a comparative ad, a, advantage. And so that access thing is really wonderful. But here's the other thing that comes with trying to attract the right talent. And the right talent wants to come to a place for a, for a few reasons. One is that they can continue to build their knowledge. 
or look at our universities. They're extraordinary. We have two higher ranked universities, and, and all four are great, but we have two higher ranked than possibly, I think, any in Mexico, for instance. So we've got this great skills base. But more than that, we've got a lifestyle. And then this economy that is willing to develop and make investments, a huge amount of mining software for the world is created right here. We store incredible amounts of data that comes to you know, our particular play into space or wherever else. And so we have a core capability around data. So I think sky's the limit, stars are the limit, universe is the limit. In fact, we might actually even see all the way back 13.8 billion years and they might actually come out of WA. <laughs> So, so that is not an overstatement. So, so that's important. And then there's something that sits underneath, and it is what has attracted me to this place as well. And it's just pioneering, and it does it its own way. And there's nothing wrong with that. And you've got some icons, obviously, in the in this country, in this state, that do that. Whether it's Andrew Forrest or Gina Reinhardt or Kerry Stokes, he's just got a way of getting on with business. And I think. For people who want to achieve great things in in the world and in life, it's a great place to, to turn up. Now, in your new role at CCI, what are some of the new initiatives you tend to put in place? I think I know one of them. Trade and investment. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Trade and investment is there. But it probably yeah. comes back to those earlier comments yeah. that I made around connecting the, the business community to the broader community. And as an organization, to realize that we may have been built in 1890, but we have to be aware that the economy has so transformed in that time. And we need to reject the industrial model of work. It's just no, no longer relevant. And while our members will still require some support in complying with regulation, etc. We need to look beyond that and we really need to look to, well, how do we set a vision around what the future of work should be and, and, and what's the regulatory and tax landscape that might actually fit that a little, a little better? And, and that is all about bringing the full WA community on board. So if I'm to encapsulate it, it's really around that innovation and impact. And there's so many things that are occurring, obviously, the digital transformation, the business model disruption, and it's moving faster and faster, the need to access these global markets. And that is really what will drive our, uh, our change inside our organisation. And I've just recently done some, some shifting of our, of our structure to reflect the need to do that. Very good. Now, my last question. When you're not busy being CEO, what do you do for fun? You've got four kids. Four kids. Four kids and a wife. Very loving one, thankfully. <laughs> so so I have kids aged five to 11. And so when I'm oh. not doing this, I'm certainly spending plenty of time with them. And, and they are curious human beings themselves and and so they have a machine gun like questioning regime that I that I that I need to I endure once I, once I've left left uh, left work for the day and if they haven't seen me in a couple of days because I've had to go to Canberra or Sydney or wherever else then I, I can expect that to run a little longer but that's a good thing so spending time with them and and supporting them is uh, is a real honor in life to to be a dad uh 
and and of course, you know, I read a lot, and I particularly for the last couple of decades, I just love reading, and I can't get enough of it. And Amazon is a particularly fortunate company when it comes uh, when it comes to me. My wife is always just pulling her hair out, saying, "Really, you needed more books right now, did you?" But but yeah, that and of course, Purse Lifestyle is get out and enjoy it. So what do you have on your bookshelf or in your Kindle, I guess? Uh, oh, I, it's you, not on my Kindle. Yeah, I'm, so old, I'm, I'm totally old print? school, yeah. Okay. So I just read uh, Tim Winton's The Shepherd's Hut. So cool. So uh, great, great book. I think one of his his finest, and I'm a huge Tim Winton fan. I can't get enough of him. I was just. I also love Julian Barnes and Ian McEwan. So anything they put out is is right up the top. But but the book that I'm reading right now is in Enlightenment Now, which is really trying to push a different view around what globalization has done for the world and in terms of reducing inequality, in terms of increasing income, in terms of mass alleviation of extreme poverty, you know, making the comment that every day for the last 25 years, 125,000 people have been released from extreme poverty in this world. And I think that often gets overlooked, you know, people cast aspersions on globalization. And I don't think it's done knowing just what has changed as a result. I, I get the fact that some parts of the community feel disenfranchised because their, cha- their, their, their work and their lives has, has changed as technology has been brought on. And we need to manage that and we need to make sure that we continue to see standards of living rise. But at the same time, I've worked in some countries and visited many other countries which are at a different point in the development continuum. And to see that mass shift into the middle class, to see them get a quality of life that was unattainable, you know, even 10 years previous as a result of globalization and as a result of economic reform that has occurred inside their country is just, I think, so gratifying as a human being. And it's easy to become caught in nationalistic type of pride and and argument. But if you view this place in terms of a bigger context and you see and imagine the smiles on those children's faces and those parents who have been able to provide a different life because they've been able to complete schooling and they've been able to get a higher paying job and and at the same time that their communities have become more secure. I I think that's just an... And their health outcomes are different altogether. That's an extraordinarily important thing for humankind. Well, Chris, we're glad to have you here in Perth. Welcome. We hope to get you to along to a lot of our Perth US Asia Center events. Thank you for taking the time to come on to our podcast and best of luck at CCI. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very Great. much. You were listening to Chris Rodwell, the new CEO of the Chamber of Commerce and Industry. He was talking to me about Western Australia's competitive advantages and how we can leverage them in the Indo-Pacific. We wish all the best to Chris as he settles down in Perth, and we look forward to getting access to his expertise on trade and investment. Thanks for listening to the Perth US Asia Center's Perspectives podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can listen to other episodes on our website at perthusasia.edu. Thanks again for listening. This is your host, Kyle Springer, signing off.